One of the things that you need to be aware of about uh, Bergen Park Church is it's very, very diverse. People come from all sorts of different backgrounds, and they find themselves here. And usually what happens is, is you're not quite as good, but you're better than the competition, okay? And uh, I get that. I understand that. But then occasionally, then in the midst of, I come from a very different spiritual background than what I see here, or different church background. Uh, one of the joys I have is sitting down with people from everything possible, everything known to mankind in terms of their their church background. And I say, well, let's open the Bible. And when we open the Bible, let's see what's you know what's written there. And if you haven't done that then maybe you do not yet understand it. It was taught to you, but did you actually see it there in the Bible? And so now we are approaching this wonderful uh, event called baptisms, and it'll be in about a month. And uh, we invite those who've come to Christ to to be baptized, and we'll mention uh, other people who might be baptized too. But as we come to this, I realize that some of you have a lot of different hows people should be baptized. Now, the, the hows would be, well, I was sprinkled as a baby, or I was poured on as, as a baby. Uh, there are others who would say, uh, you know, in history, when they were short of water in the Arabian Desert, they baptized with sand, and we have records of that being done, too. Or uh, being baptized in water that you would never drink, but they'd pour it over you. And then, of course, for us, we do it by immersion. Uh, this sort of fades away, and there's a tub back there, and, and uh, it is heated. <sighs> Friends, 18 years in an unheated tub. I tell you, that was a challenge, okay? And, um, but, but those who are going to be baptized, you need to know, come from many different not, uh, spiritual settings in their lives. What do I mean? Well, there's one who's talked about being rebaptized because he has come back to faith in Christ and, and had left the church for quite a while and now has come back. And, and there's others who say, well, I have a faith in Christ, but I, am I, uh, 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 is it really necessary that I be baptized? I mean, is it, I mean, is something bad going to happen to me if I'm not? Um, and, and my answer to that person has been no, not necessarily. Uh, let me give you an assurance about baptism because we're looking at Jesus' baptism this morning. Um, the assurance is, is that baptism does not mean that you are a real Christian. Nor does it mean that, you, that not being baptized, that you are a poor Christian. You get, you get the double negatives there? Baptism is still important to a believer. And we find that when somebody says, okay, the time has come to get baptized, uh, that it involves an intellectual sort of thought, because uh, they come into understanding why should there be baptism. It also involves a will. In other words, I choose to be baptized. And it also involves your body. Body, soul, I mean body, mind, and will. You put those three together, and I think you have what what we call the soul. It is uh, it, it is a whole person because when we baptize, we promise you're going to get completely wet. So 
when it comes to baptism, we have to understand that there are practices that are put in Scripture, and then we see Jesus' baptism. And Jesus' baptism, and as is baptized by John the baptizer, would be different than ours. So we look at Jesus' baptism, and, and from Jesus' baptism, we use this as a model to figure out ours. But we also understand that our baptism would not be the same as his. We're not the sons of God. And, uh, you know, we're not divine. And when we get our baptism figured out, then we look at Jesus' life as he enters his ministry after his baptism, and we begin to figure out what's next for us. Gordon MacDonald has called this, uh, in, a, in a business term, what it's a critical transaction. And what do I mean by a critical transaction? Uh, a critical transaction is a crucial moment uh, that that a business needs to keep the doors open. It's a crucial moment. It defines what keeps a business operating. And we also have a critical transaction in terms of a Jesus follower in our walks with God. So let's say you're about ready to buy a new car. And you're thinking of that car, and you think, okay, I'm ready. So what is the critical transaction of buying a new car? What keeps the business operating? It's not the fact that it's gone through a long design process and actually been manufactured. That's not the critical transaction. It's not the fact that the manufacturer delivers the car to the dealer. That's not either the critical transaction. It's not the fact that you get in it and you take it for a test drive. That's not the critical transaction. The critical transaction of buying a car is that you go into that office, you sign a contract, you write a check, or do something where you make your down payment and you walk away or you drive away with that car. That is a critical transaction. Now, for the kingdom of God, what is the critical transaction? Some would say it's baptism. And I believe baptism is very important But I believe there's something that the critical transaction occurs before that. And and then baptism is like what follows afterwards. The critical transaction in the kingdom of God is one individual placing his or her trust in Jesus Christ as God's son and as that person's savior for the forgiveness of sins and the gift of eternal life. It is placing one's faith in Jesus Christ. And friends, that's a critical transaction because in a way you're saying, I now believe. I don't know what I believed before, but I have a picture now of what it's like. And I would now call myself a believer and follower of Jesus Christ. Well, that's a critical transaction. And I want you to know that in this passage I'm about to read, that it it involves your baptism as well as Jesus' baptism and the baptism John was giving, as well as Jesus' temptation and your temptation. And there are facets that will be very similar between us and Jesus, but also other things that are quite different. So I'm in Mark, and uh, we're looking at this critical transaction. I'm in chapter 1, and I'm reading from verse 4. If you have your Bibles, open up there, and it says, And so John who we call John the baptizer, came baptizing in the desert, in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside 
And all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John is a messenger with a message. And so it says there in verse 4, he came baptizing in the desert. And what's his message? He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. We do not do that today. But if you return to John, you understand that as a messenger, first of all, he's like a cousin of Jesus in in his earthly body, in, in Jesus' earthly body. And he's less than a year older than Jesus, but also very, very different than Jesus. He's never claimed to be the son of God like Jesus claims. And he is the one sent by God to prepare the way. You might say to soften up the souls so that they would recognize the Messiah when he comes. Now, they're expecting, all of Israel is expecting a military general who will throw out the Roman Empire and they'll rule themselves, the Jews. John, though, prepares them for the Messiah who has come to rescue their broken relationship with God and to reconcile it. Many accept his message. Many are saying, yes, you are preparing me. And they are baptized, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. But many others do not. John prepares by preaching a message that they are sinners in need of forgiveness from God. And the baptism he offers is an outward sign that they agree with John. They agree with John and they repent of their sins meaning they are aware that they are sinners and they will strive to sin less or sin no more. Now that's the messenger. There's something out about the messenger. John is quite a character. He has a unique brand. I lived 12 years in the desert of, uh, not, not the desert with all the wonderful golf courses. I lived 12 years in the desert where there's not much. Okay? Uh, And... uh, in, in those terms, John would be called a survivalist. This is essentially what he was. Now, a survivalist in the desert was unique because I'd go and visit them and maybe they had come to my church and they would show us their little hut on their, on their acreage and they had huge walls around uh, their, their acreage. And, and more than that, they would show you two sheds or a huge basement. And in the basement or the sheds, I'll be honest, one was food for five years. The other one was ammo for their guns. Now, that's a survivalist. And believe me, in the desert, they loved going there, and they they loved sort of hiding away. John's more like a survivalist in that he would not fit in with the rest of his culture. Uh, And he wouldn't fit in with some of the people that, that we know today. They would avoid him. For John, it means he has a weird appearance. He wears weird clothing. He eats a weird diet, and he does his ministry in a weird location, a a deserted place, a wilderness place. Now, John and I have some very stark differences, and we have a couple similarities. 
Let me start with the difference. John is a prophet. I'm a shepherd. John will just come right out and call you a sinner, even if he knows nothing about you. And that you have come to John so you can escape the fires of eternal hell. He goes, thank you very much. Glad to say it. Okay? That's John. And that's who he was all the time. I'm a shepherd. I'm a shepherd. And so you come to me and you say, tell me about sin. And I'll tell you, hey, I'm a sinner. And here's where I sin. So don't get so upset that I'm condemning you. But more than that, let's you and I together open the Bible study together and see how we can better please God in our lives. I'm a shepherd. John's a prophet. Who are you? John and I are different. Now, let me ask this. If you wanted to uh, schedule a lunch with either John or Jim, you'd probably choose me. Yeah, you don't want to hear over a spicy burrito that you're a sinner. So you'd probably choose me. Well, that's where we are different. But John and I also share some things together. Can I share just what they are? And I've been giggling about this all week because it came to me on Tuesday. We both wear leather. Leather belts. You ready for this? Camel hair. 100% camel hair. I've been storing it for years, okay? And I just want you to know that John and I dress exactly the same. No, not so. But we share that in common. (laughs) But in most things, you'd say you're very different. I think I'm far better looking than John was, but nobody can measure. Now, Now, here is the message. And understand what he's doing is trying to say, do not look at me, but instead look at the one coming after me. This was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John and Jesus also have great differences. Jesus could be both prophet and priest, prophet and shepherd. It depended on the person's heart condition that he was speaking to. Some people need a prophet to whittle them down. Some people need a priest or a shepherd to build them up. But John is keenly aware that he is preparing Israel for the Messiah, and he is not that Messiah. Jesus is. John is God's messenger with God's message. Now let's look at the critical transaction that occurred in John's baptism. With John, it was the fact that people heard his message, agreed to his message, and they began to repent inwardly and be baptized outwardly. The crowds would flock to John. It says they came from everywhere, especially from Jerusalem, which was you know, pretty much a one or two day walk. They would go to see him to hear that they're sinners. I don't even need to look in the mirror, friends. I know that. And yet they would do that because maybe they were thinking because they were Jews, they had life figured out, they had a good relationship with God, and 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 yet things still weren't right. Now the crowds that flock to him understand that always be ones who would write down, well, how many? Did John baptize today? I don't think John ever kept count, but there's always some bean counters who do. There'd be others who would say, and who did John baptize? Well, 
if it was an entertainer and it was like let's, the, 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 you know, the previous Beyonce, that would make the news. If it was a well-known religious figure admitting, hey, I, I need to repent of my sin, that would also make the news back in Jerusalem. And then the fact that tax collectors and Roman soldiers were baptized was also news. John will baptize anybody. He doesn't care. Because it's always the same. I say it again. Preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's a difference between them and us, and we'll get there soon. Then he also says in verse 8, I baptize you with water... But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The, the, you know, if you look at scholars who write on that verse today, they will interpret John words differently, but almost every scholar will agree with this. When you place your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and for eternal life, the Holy Spirit begins an indwelling life inside of you. Now, before that beginning indwelling spirit, understand the Holy Spirit was still active. And in the Old Testament, you can see that he falls on certain people and they begin to, uh, uh, to, to prophesy or, or they, they, they show works of power. But it wasn't that the Holy Spirit would stay dwelling within them at all times. This occurs when we place our trust in Jesus Christ after his death and resurrection. So the Holy Spirit was active, but he wasn't dwelling in the believer. Now, uh, that was the baptism and what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit, or at least what, what the basic foundation is. And when that spirit dwells within you, it does not claim, he does not claim that he's influencing you deeply at all times. I've known many people who've just turned off the influence of the Holy Spirit even though he is dwelling inside of them. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now let's talk about your baptism. Your baptism is different than John's, and it's different than the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Your baptism is a public display of an inner faith that you have placed in Jesus Christ. In a way, it's a solemn party. It's solemn because you realize that critical transaction has occurred, but I'm showing it on the outside. I'm giving it, I'm, I'm, I'm displaying it publicly. It's not a rite of passage like an Hispanic quinceanera or a Jewish bar mitzvah. And it's not the critical transaction. One more time. The critical transaction between you and God is placing your trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And what comes back to you is that God gives then his part of the transaction is he forgives you of your sin, past, present, and the ones you'll do in the future. He forgives you your sin, and he gives you the gift of eternal life. That is settled. It's not like a contract is signed, but that is settled. And it will remain that way for the rest of your life until you're with Christ in heaven for eternity. That's part of your baptism. And so Ephesians chapter 2 and 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, lest anyone can, can boast. It would be possible to say, I agree with John's baptism, and I am repenting of my sin, 
And that is why it's because I have chosen to repent of my sin that I am forgiven. Jesus would say it's simpler than that. You have placed your trust in Jesus as God's Son and our Savior. And we'll work on repentance. We'll work on following Jesus. But the main thing and the critical transaction is you understand you have placed your trust in Christ and that is by grace. You have not earned it. You cannot boast about it. You cannot brag to others of how good you are. You brag to others of how good God is. Understand that Jesus then said to his disciples on his last night before his crucifixion, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. Way, truth, life, exclusive, yes, But if you want to be God's child, you go through Christ. Three baptisms, and we're coming to a fourth. There's John's baptism. There's the Holy Spirit baptism. There's your baptism and Jesus' baptism. His is unique. At his own baptism, he requests that John would be the one baptizing him. And John says, no, it ought to be the other way around. You should be baptizing me. But Jesus insists. And so Jesus is immersed by John there in that uh, isolated uh, place of the Jordan River. And at that moment, it says, when he comes up, the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. The voice of God is heard to say, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. I really wanted Darth Vader's voice for that. It would have just added so much. I just don't have it. I uh, I was with a, a person from the country, a, a rancher, and, and she was telling me this week, well, the, the way that one man said, you know, put it, he says, uh, if Jesus was being baptized, then John would probably say to him, in the name of your dad, yourself, and your best friend, I baptize you. <laughs> I like that. In the name of your dad, yourself, and your best friend, you are now baptized. Well, what this essentially is, is it's an announcement. It's letting the cat out of the bag for Jesus. It is both an announcement that he is God's son and beginning his mission, and it's the launching of that mission. So it does those two things. It announces who he is, and it, and it, and it is the, you know, the opening of the door. So that he can now spend probably less than three years accomplishing what his mission is. And as he begins his mission, John was right. He must increase and I must decrease. John begins to decrease. And King Herod arrests him and soon executes him. So John can say of himself, my mission was accomplished. The accomplishment of his mission you might say in a time framework, is the beginning of Jesus' mission. And it says in verses 12 and 13, at once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, Jesus. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with wild animals, and the angels attended to him. John's arrest means that the rest of Israel, everybody in the local region, Suddenly, they saw that Jesus has no competition. 
And the ministry begins with a big similarity between Jesus beginning his ministry and you might say us beginning our new lives in following Christ. Jesus begins his ministry by being thrust out into the desert and being tempted by the evil one. I found that when I put my trust in Christ, and this we're talking 50 years ago now, but when I put my trust in Christ, I became very sensitive to the temptations that were all around me. More sensitive than I was before. Now, I knew right and wrong, and if I was to compare myself to most of my friends, I was righter and they were wronger. I lived a pretty good uh, moral, ethical life. But it wasn't that... uh, that I was good compared to other people. It was I was aware that there were inner forces in my life that were trying to stop me from following Jesus. So Jesus is thrust out there, and it says he's there 40 days. He's uh, being tempted by Satan. And in Matthew chapter 4, we have a, a long description of Satan's temptation. First of all, he's hungry because he's been there 40 days and fasting. So Satan says to him, you know, if you want, you can turn these stones into bread and you won't be hungry anymore. Jesus is hungry because he's isolated. But Jesus to this temptation says no. And this is not about going on a diet, friend. It, it's, it's instead Jesus is aware that Satan knows his physical needs and his physical state. And Satan is offering him, I have a way out for you. And if you take it, hey, what's wrong with that? Knowing that it came from the evil one, Jesus says no to Satan. And that's the first of three that are listed. The second one is he, uh, he offers to Jesus heavenly protection of angels. Quoting scripture, heavenly protection so he would not be hurt if he jumped off the top of the temple. Now, the temple wasn't just that it was so high, but there was a wall on the back end, and that's where he took him. That steeply went down into a valley. So we're talking uh, a fall that would kill you, not just hurt you. And Jesus says no to the heavenly protection. Jesus needed to say no to that heavenly protection then because a time was coming in just a period of years when that temptation would come again. He tells Herod, don't you think that I could be spared by legions of angels who could come and save me? But he says, no again. Same temptation. This time it means he goes to his cross rather than finding an easier way out. There's a third temptation. Takes him to a high spot where he overlooks all the kingdoms of the world. And on that high spot he goes, all of these are yours. They're all yours. You know, they'll all be yours. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. That would mean no cross. That would mean no crucifixion. It would mean no, uh, no beatings, no whippings. Boy, would that be great. But Jesus understands that the kingdom that he's going to have has nothing to do with the kingdoms that Satan now claims ownership over. He has the kingdom of God in his mind. 
And he chooses to battle and defeat Satan rather than to worship him. And thus, it, it, it starts what you might call a, a time clock ticking when all the kingdoms of the world will eventually bow down to Jesus to the honor of God the Father. And Jesus said no again. Now, that's Jesus' temptation. How about mine? I've determined that I'm an easier target for Satan than Jesus. And I'm just going to throw this out. Maybe you are too. I don't know, and I'm not here to uh, expose your sins, to expose the temptations that you give into. But I've been around. I know what's going on inside of me. It's easy for me to strike back at my critics. I learned to strike back with a sharp tongue developed in middle school. And uh, I am very, very good at that sharp tongue. It's very easy for me to tell confidential stuff to other people that shouldn't be hearing it. All I have to say is, well, just make sure you don't tell another soul. It's very easy for me to compare myself to other ministers. And I usually turn out on, no. How about you and your temptation? Anger, gossip. You might say uh, like a, uh, an attraction to things that you, 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 you struggle with. That attraction can lead to addiction. Deception, lying. Friends, I just finished a nonfiction book this week. It was very, very interesting. Because in that nonfiction book, there was all of these sins, anger, lying, deception. More than that, it went to revenge, to thievery, to robbery, to rape, and to really exterminating an entire city. It was the book of Genesis. It was the book of Genesis that I just finished. It lays out humanity as clearly as it can. How about you? Not Jacob, not Abraham, not Reuben. How about you? How about you when you're thinking, well, everybody does it. It can't be that bad. How about you? Friends, our new lives in Christ make us a desirable target for Satan. He does exist. He is an opponent. And likely we will feel a more intensive pressure to cave. But because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, I also believe we'll feel a more intensive desire to obey Our track record will never be as good as Jesus' perfect one. We will fail. But like Jesus, we should know the areas that Satan will attack. We should be aware that he knows our weaknesses. But he also knows that he is limited. John says this, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. That is a great thing that I keep coming back to when I sense these magnetic attractions of my life. 
Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Each of us will have different temptation experiences with different uh, responses. And if we're really authentic, we'll also have different accounts of both successes and, unfortunately, failures. But, friends, we can know that God is not just with us. God, through his Spirit, is in us. He equips us. He empowers us. In Christ Jesus, we can answer to Satan, no, and overcome him. Not perfectly, but steadily. And we can be alongside others so that together we will kick Satan's butt, two of us at a time. How about you? Where would you say the attack is most visible right now? If, uh, if you're saying, oh, you know, I've, I've, I don't have those problems anymore, then deception, okay? Self-aggrandizement. You, you call it what you want. You're sailing on this river cruise on denial, okay? It exists. How about you? And where do you want to go back to this indwelling Holy Spirit who just does not live with you, but he's greater because he dwells in you than he who lives in the world? Father, I thank you. I thank you for this, this wonderful, this wonderful example where we see both the similarities and differences, but also the critical transaction. My prayer is if someone is here today considering, do I trust in Christ and then do I follow Christ? They will understand the cost, but the eternal benefits too. And I pray they'll say, yes, I place my trust in Christ. And I pray that they would recognize and actually experience the one who has baptized them with the Holy Spirit. And Father, right now on my heart has been praying for our nation. What a weekend. If we're news junkies, we have seen both swings of the pendulum, both sides claiming victory. And I go back to this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Father, may whichever direction this nation is going in, whoever gets the most loud, uh, the loudest exposure, um, I pray because you say that the nations are nothing but a drop in the bucket to you and that you are the one who ultimately determines the king's heart and his direction. I pray that through these next four years, your kingdom would swell in the United States and surge through this nation. That through that, you would take us further in spreading the gospel to all the nations of the world. That is the ultimate desire of the kingdom. And I thank you in Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Let's stand.
Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and
And now go into a world that is thirstier than it knows for the truth of Jesus Christ. Go in offering God the Father's solution, not this world's. Go into your world, into every relationship, praying, Lord, how do you want to use me here? And God will speak. In Jesus' great and marvelous name, amen. God bless you today.